Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world, to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall no more go out. And I write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Tonight we're looking at the church of brotherly love. Church of brotherly love. So let's go to the Lord's Prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the privilege and opportunity we have to open your precious word tonight. And I pray as we look under the word of God that you would encourage us and strengthen us and challenge us, Father, in our walk with you. And you may be glorified and honored. Have your will and way in each heart and life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Of course, the name Philadelphia, as you probably all know, means brotherly love. And this is, of course, to be a mark, identification mark, a distinct mark of Bible believers. You know, before Jesus left the disciples in John chapter 13, he said, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And the, the word word of the phrase brotherly love is used seven times in six verses in the New Testament and I'd like to look at those briefly uh, so we understand what it means to have brotherly love in Romans chapter 12 verse 10 the first place it's used it says be kindly affectioned one to another with brother love in honor preferring one another so brotherly love then is, is to, uh, to be kindly affectioned one to another. Uh, we're to show that, that kindly affection. Uh, you know, we are in the same family, the family of God. And you would expect in family, in a family, one expects love. That ought to be expected, can be expected. And so it speaks of you know, kindred feelings of a, and of our common nature. We have one father. Remember, Bill Winstead used to say he'd warn people about, young ladies particularly, about marrying unsaved guys. He said, if you marry an unsaved guy, you're going to have trouble with your father-in-law. And he wasn't referring to their dad. Uh, you know, we, we, but we, if we're in the family of God, have to be kindly affectioned one to another, uh, preferring one another and honoring one another. 
In 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, it's used again. But as touching brother love, need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. So here we are told that brotherly love is something that we must be taught. If children weren't taught to be kind and compassionate and to share, we'd have a world full of monsters. We'd all be monsters. If they were, if, if, and of course, we see some of those in the world. Uh, yeah, you can see them every day if you go to Walmart. And sometimes I bite my tongue because I want to say, yeah, I could solve that problem for you pretty easily. No, we have to be taught that. It's not human nature. It's not human nature. Human nature is selfish. Human nature looks out for itself. And, and so he, sa- he said that in, in, when he wrote to the church of Thessalonica that you are taught of God to love one another. So it's something we learn. God teaches us through his grace. And, of course, he gives us examples of his own love. You know, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Romans 5.8, God commendeth his love toward us in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. In Ephesians 5.1, he says, be therefore followers of God as dear children and walk in love. If you're going to follow God, you'll walk in love. Because God is love. So it's something that we have to be taught. And it's something that we should increase more and more. Verse 10 of that same chapter, 1 Thessalonians 4, says, And indeed you do it toward all the brethren, which are in all Macedonia, but we seech you, brethren, that you increase more and more. You ought to increase in brotherly love more and more. Uh, in Hebrews 13.1, it says, Let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. You know that you know, if it's gonna if it's gonna be meaningful, meaningful, it needs to continue. It's just not a one time thing or an occasional experience. It's something that ought to become part of us. Ought to become part of us. Like a habit. Something that it and it's really it's something that's an outgrowth of the work of God within. You know, I understand having to learn this. My, my family didn't express love. We argued a lot. And we always got along. You know, we can argue and everybody goes their ways, so, you know, and, and everybody still gets along. They just state their peace. But expressing love wasn't, one of, one of, wasn't a, a mark of the Byler family. <laughs> uh, it's something I had to learn. And, and it is, the Bible says here, it's to continue, continue, or it is to last, it is to endure, it's to abide. And again, we go back to 1 Thessalonians 4, we're to increase in it more and more. It must be maintained. Uh, in 1 Peter 2, or 1, 22, it says, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, See that you love one another with a pure heart 
fervently. So brother love must be unfeigned. It must be real. It must be genuine. It, it should be exercised out of a pure heart fervently. It's to be without pretense or hypocrisy. All of you, as well as I, have said, you know, somebody does something, a certain person may do something nice for you, and you're wondering, I wonder what they want. Because you know them, you know. Because you know it's hypocritical. It's not real. No. Our brotherly love is to be genuine, out of a pure heart, and fervently. It's not something we just talk about. It's something that we do. We demonstrate it, and we do it sincerely. God wants us to be sincere in all, all areas of life. And then it's used two times in First Peter chapter, or second. I'm sorry, Second Peter five, Second Peter one, verse seven. It says, and besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith. And this is actually verses five through seven, but in verse seven is where it is. But let's get the context here. Besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, to knowledge temperance, to temperance patience, to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. And that's, again, our word for brotherly love. Brotherly kindness. So it's mentioned twice in this verse, and it's kind of a picture of the sending scale of virtues that a Christian must endeavor to acquire. You know, we're to add these things. Again, these things aren't, are not something of our human nature. They're something that we endeavor to add to our life as a child of God. We're to add diligence, faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience. You have natural, are naturally patient. Not me. Uh, patience, godliness, and the godliness, brotherly kindness. So, so it's kind of an outgrowth of all these things, and, and you know it exhibits from a godly disposition. You know, if we are uh, 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 are godly or honoring the Lord in every every area of life and every relationship of life, you know we will develop that brotherly love and kindness one for another. It's really putting the Lord first. And it will be a natural outgrowth of our love for the Lord. And so we are to have brotherly love one for another. In fact, you know, this, this you know, brotherly love, uh, Jesus, of course, taught this in, in, in a new commandment in John chapter 13. But look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Paul has some very strong statements about charity in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verses 1 through 3. He says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, and charity speaks of agape love, would be the love of God. It's not of our human nature, but it's something that God uh, sheds abroad in our hearts. By the Holy Ghost. So I can speak with the tongues of men and have and of angels and have not charity. I'm become sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. 
You, you, you can be the greatest orator the world knows. But the Spirit of God says here, if you don't have love, true, genuine love, you're just like a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal that's out of harmony. It's meaningless. Verse 2, though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and though I give my body to be burned, have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. You see, if our, if our service is not governed by our love for the Lord and love for God's creatures, then who's it for? It's for self. It's for self. You know, there's a lot of self-motivated people. A lot of ministries are businesses. They're money-making ventures. You know, I've been, I've been in independent Baptist churches where they tell you how to use people. Preachers sitting around, they tell you, you know, well, you, you just focus, you don't worry about those that, you know, that, that you know, don't seem to be faithful. You just worry about those that, that are faithful to you and you focus only on those and you work through those. And you just kind of, sort of like ignore the rest. You can never see that as right. We like, you know, well, the, you know, I like this child better than the rest of them. You know, they, they, have, a, they have some more qualities that I like. And, and so I'll just let that one go its own way. And I'll just work on this one that I really like. Is there anything different about the two? The same thing. No. You, however, whatever personality your children are, you love them and you desire what's best. And you will work with them. To see them grow and change. That's, that's what the Bible calls brotherly love, sincere love. And so it is the city, it is known as the church, and of course Philadelphia is the name of that city. It was a city of brotherly love, and that was the characteristics of this church. And he goes on and says then in verse 1, These things saith he that is holy. And we get a description of, of the Lord Jesus Christ who, who is writing to these churches. And he's and writing, of course, to the pastor to these churches who are the messengers. These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. So there's four things the Lord says here about, him, about himself. And the first one is that he is holy. That he is holy. This, of course, refers to the, the character of our Lord Jesus Christ and, you know, in addressing this church. But he is holy. The Lord is holy. In fact, Isaiah 57, 15 says his name is holy. It's the essence of who God is. And it's a reminder to the church of his holiness and reminded that we need to be holy. Uh, be ye holy in all manner of conversation, uh, for I am holy, Peter tells us. And so, he is holy, but he is also true. 
He is truth. Uh, of course, you know, He is truth. In John chapter 8, verse 40 and 45. In John 8, verses 40 and 45. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. And He says, But now ye seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. In other words, Abraham didn't seek to kill God. He told him the truth. Verse 45, And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth. John 17, 17, Sanctify them through the truth. Thy word is truth. And again in 1 John chapter 5 and, and verse 20, John, the apostle of love, as we call him, said this, We know that the Son of God has come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true. And we are in him that is true. Even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. You see, God is holy and God is true. And love and truth go together like a hand in a glove. If our love is not governed by truth and holiness, it is feigned or insincere. It's not real love. Yes, God loves us with an everlasting love, but He is honest with us. He tells us the truth. Sometimes it hurts. I haven't told my wife this in a long time, but I used to have this little saying, the truth hurts. Uh, maybe I need to tell her that again. But, but anyway, uh, no, the truth really doesn't hurt. It's just sometimes we don't want to obey the truth, and therefore it's hard for us. The truth is good for us. It's what makes us genuine. And again, truth is to be, you know, we are to speak the, the truth in love. Uh, so, so, you know, it is, is to be governed by love. You know, we, it's, it's possible for a person to be true and yet not loving. I don't think you can be really loving and not true. So he is holy. He is true. The third thing we see here is he hath the keys of David. It is he that hath the keys of David. You notice again in verse 1, in the middle of the verse, it's he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. Now this speaks of authority or the Lord's own authority. You know, possessing a key is a reference to the authority of Christ. Uh, as you know, you might say, he owns the keys to the house. Now, it's a quotation. When it says the key of David, it's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 22 and verse 22, where it speaks of Eliakim, whom God raised up, the son of Hilkiah, who was the treasure of the David's house. And he had the keys. He had the keys. So he was... He, he was, you might say, a high state official and a faithful 
trusted servant who under the who served under Hezekiah, uh, has, uh, the king Hezekiah, and you know having this key implied that he had royal control and unlimited access in the kingdom. And you know having that key gives us a sense that that there was great responsibility or like a chain of responsibility hanging from his shoulders. You know, with this comes great responsibility. And of course, the, the reference here is, or the figure is, remember what Isaiah 9, 6 says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. The government shall be upon his shoulders. So this, this idea of the having the he that hath the keys of David speaks of the government of God being on the shoulders of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that has that responsibility. And one day upon his shoulders, he will eternally, you know, God will place the kingdoms of the world. They will become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, Revelation tells us. So it speaks of authority. And it went further when it says, He that openeth and no man shutteth and shutteth and no man openeth. Again, it speaks of absolute control over all of creation. You know, he has control over who's admitted into the kingdom and who's not. He dictates the terms. You know, there is a wall in heaven. There are no walls to get into hell. And there are conditions. There are terms to be met for a person to get into heaven. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ that dictates those terms. He is the one that shuts and no man opens. And he'll open and no man shuts it. He is sovereign. He holds the key to truth and holiness as well as the keys for opportunity, service, testimony. You know, he can open the storehouse of his, of his treasure house, the word of God to us, and none can shut it. But if there's perversity of spirit and unwillingness to walk in the truth, he can also shut the doors. And none can open it. When God called Noah in the ark, he shut the door. Now, it was open for all who would be willing to enter for 120 years. It was open. That ark door was open for 120 years while Noah preached, Judgment is coming. Repent. Prepare to meet thy God. Repent of your evil ways. But at God's appointed time, the door was shut. And no matter how much pleading one may do, it would not be opened. You see, our Lord is sovereign. And when he shuts the door, it's shut. You know, Christ is the key to understanding the scriptures. 
what's second you know second second Corinthians chapter two says second uh, Timothy two or not second Timothy second Corinthians two and verse fourteen second Corinthians two fourteen I'm sorry. First Corinthians two, fourteen. Wrong, wrong book. First Corinthians two fourteen says, "But the natural man receiveth not things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned." Uh, and of course, you know, God's revealed them to us. Verse ten says, "God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God." So in order to understand the Word of God and have the Word of God open to us, we have to, have, we have to know Christ as our Savior has the Spirit of God living within us. And it is the Lord that opens doors and shuts doors. We see examples of this in Scripture. Look at Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. And verse 27. Acts 14, 27. And when they were come, and they had gathered the church together, rehearsed all that God had done with him, them, and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Notice, Paul and Barnabas declared very plainly, God hath opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. We didn't do it. God did. God opened the door. Look at chapter 16. Chapter 16, verse 6. Now we had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, so a door was shut. After they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not, so another door shut. And they, passing by Mysia, came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed to him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. So God shut two doors. They intended to go two places, and God said, no, he shut the doors. And then they had this, Paul had this vision, and a door was opened to them. In, in uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 9, Paul speaks about many adversaries in, in, in uh, Corinth, but also, at the same time, there was a door. Uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 9. For a great door and effectual is open unto me, and there are many adversaries. So there's a door open. So, it, you know, it, it's not a matter of force or of advertising. You know, the pressure is on churches to be effective, to be successful. I mean, to grow. What church, what pastor doesn't want his church to grow? So the pressure's on. What do we got to do to make it grow, to make it happen? Force? Advertising? No, it's of him. Opening the door. You see, he makes the terms. 
We're just supposed to be obedient. He's the finality of all things. And all problems are solved in him. You know, there again, there's a tendency to compromise in order to gain opportunities. Whereas, in truth, it is our responsibility to simply do what is right. And it's God's responsibility to open the doors of opportunity. And God won't force people to receive him. So he is sovereign. He can open doors. And when he opens it, it won't be shut. And when he shuts it, it won't be open. The Lord is sovereign. He is sovereign. Don't you notice also, now we get to the condemnation or commendation in uh, verse 8, Revelation chapter 3. <clears throat> he says, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. So, here we see that he, there's a couple things he commends this church for. First of all, they have kept his word. He said, you have kept my word. Uh, to keep his word, there's three things there we can consider. First of all, Keep his word means to guard it, to guard it. You know, God has entrusted his word to us. In John chapter 17, verse 8, it says, For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them. He's talking to his disciples, to his church. And have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. So he gave his words to his church. And historically, through the centuries, it is the churches that have guarded that have copied, that have translated into their own languages the scriptures. Until it became profitable for publishing companies. Because for hundreds of years, the King James Bible was the best-selling book in the world. Do you know why it's not real attractive to publishing companies? you ever think about it? It's not copyrighted. Do you know other versions are? So publishing companies have got into, and churches have given that over, a lot of them too, to the publishing companies, have got into publishing the Bible, and hence one of the reasons for all the corruptions in the Word of God and all these modern perversions is because... That's a money-making scheme. Money is the root of all evil. I don't think there's anything that's caused more confusion in the world than all these modern versions. Because which one is the Word of God? They're not all the same. No, it's the church's responsibility to guard, to copy, and to translate the Scriptures. We also, secondly, as we keep his, consider keeping his word, we need to feed on the truth. In, in Matthew 4, 4, Jesus said, But he answered and said, speaking to Satan, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. See, we are to feed on the scriptures. 
In Acts chapter 20, verses 26 to 28, Paul told the Ephesian elders, Wherefore I take you to record this day, that I am pure from the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock, over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. We need to feed on the truth of the word of God. And then we also need to heed it or obey it. You know, this is more than we need to do more than just guard it and read it and memorize it. We're to obey it. We're to observe to do. As the Lord told Joshua in Joshua 1 8, this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous and then thou shalt have good success. And Jesus actually said, the mark of a man's love, or the measure of a man's love for the Lord is his obedience to his word. John 14, 23 and 24. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings, and the words which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's, which sent me. You know, we, can, we can understand, and you apply this, that, those verses to Peter and Judas. Both of them sinned against the Lord. But Peter obeyed his word. He got right with the Lord. Judas did not. You see, Peter loved the Lord. He loved the Lord. Judas feigned himself to be one of the twelve. And so they kept his word. And then he also says, Hath not denied my name. Not denied my name. Let's consider the name of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, they were willing to own him as their master and as their king. That's what the word Lord means. The name Lord means. They the, the word their name Jesus means Savior. So we accept him as the virgin-born, sinless sacrifice from sin, who rose from the dead bodily, justifying all who trust in him as the Lord and Savior. He is the Christ, the chosen one, the anointed of God. You know, he is the prophet, the priest, and the coming king, those things that are referred to in the Old Testament. And, and he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the first from, firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have preeminence so they, they didn't deny his name you know the other churches we, you know, we looked at some of the other churches and they were denying his name there was a denial of his name one commentator said thus when we confess his name we're acknowledging that the eternal son was manifest in the flesh that he was a chosen and anointed by his father to work out our salvation through his death and resurrection who exalted in heaven is destined to rule in glory and righteousness right now having preeminence over all things even the church which is his body see Christ should be the center of everything to us the hub of the wheel so to speak they have not denied his name and so, 
He commends these, this church for these things. And then in verse 9, there's, there's an interesting statement. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and know that I have loved thee. Now we talked a little bit about the synagogue of Satan that say they are Jews and are not. You know, this, I believe, speaks of false religion and will culminate later. We'll see it again in Revelations chapter 17 and 18. And, you know, you, you, could, you could lump in there all false religion. So it was a pseudo-Christianity. They say they're Jews, they're not. Uh, but they try to say that, you know, they were Christian would be the application. Uh, heretical, uh, you know, uh, false Christianity, and, and he said they're going to they're gonna come, and he said, they, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Uh, it's interesting, if you do read some Baptist history, one of the things you're going to find is that... Uh, <clears throat> Reformers, almost all denominations have a historian that will have to admit that Bible-believing Baptists were the original first century Christians. For example, Dutch Reformed historian, and I can't even pronounce his name, but he said this, We have now seen that the Baptists, who were formerly called Anabaptists, that was a term in derision, but were the original Waldenses, and who have long in history received the honor of that origin. On this account, the Baptists may be considered as the only Christian community which has stood since the days of the apostles. And as a Christian society which has preserved, pure the doctrine of the gospel through all ages. Unquote. That's a Dutch reform. Historian. Uh, and I won't read all these for sake of time, but Methodist scholar John Clark Ridpath wrote, quote, I should not readily admit that there was a Baptist church as far back as 100 A.D., though without doubt there were Baptists then, as all Christians were then Baptists, unquote. Lutheran Mosham writes, the origin of the Anabaptists is lost in the remote depths of antiquity. Before the rise of Luther and Calvin, there lay concealed in almost all the countries of Europe persons who adhered tenaciously to the principles of the modern Dutch Baptists. And a Catholic cardinal, Hosus, writes, quote, Were it not for the fact that the Anabaptists have, grievously, have been grievously tormented and cut off with a knife during the past 1,200 years, they would swarm greater numbers than all the reformers, unquote. And we could go on and on. You know, Spurgeon said this. Of course, he was a Baptist. He said, we believe, quote, we believe that the Baptists are the original Christians. We did not commence our existence at the Reformation. We were reformers before Luther or Calvin were born. We never came from the Church of Rome. Well, we were never in it. But we have an unbroken line up to the apostles themselves, unquote. The Baptist people didn't come out of the Reformation. It's Bible Christianity. It goes all the way back to John the Baptist. 
We preach the same message he preached. Repent and be converted. You see, and these, you see what, what's happening here? They're having to admit and bow at the feet of Bible believers that this is true Christianity. This is true Christianity. And, you know, sometimes what you see is you witness to one of them and they receive true Christianity. Goes. Um, then notice in verse 9, or verse 10, again, he commends them for, he says, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell on the work on the earth. Here's a pr- promise of protection. They have they have waited patiently. It speaks of the uh, they thou hast kept the word of my patience. The word of my patience there I believe speaks of waiting for the return of the Lord. Uh, in First Thessalonians chapter one verses nine through ten, the Bible speaks of this. The church at Thessalonica, for they themselves show of us what manner of entering we had unto you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. So there's a promise here of them waiting, and there's a promise of protection that He will keep them from the hour of temptation. Now we have a lot of questions about what is that hour of temptation. Well, there's several things we know. Number one. It's a short period of time. It's a short period of time. He calls it an hour. Now, we know from if you, when you're talking of prophecy in the scripture, an hour doesn't necessarily mean just an hour. Seven weeks may not mean seven weeks. It may mean seven weeks of years or 49 years. But we do know this. It is a short period of time. Second thing we know is, it's going to be a period of time that will try all the world and those that dwell in it, on the earth. And the third thing we know is, God promised to keep them from it. He does not say, he'll he'll keep thee from the trials of this hour, or keep them through the trials of this hour, he said, I'll keep you from this hour. In other words, he's going to evacuate. You're not going to be there when it comes, when it happens. You're going to be taken out, just as Enoch was taken out before the flood came. So we believe this to be the tribulation, reference to the tribulation period. In fact, in Matthew 24, 22, the Bible says this, Except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be short. That seven-year period after the rapture of the saints, called the tribulation, we're going to look at that in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. It's coming. When God is going to pour out his wrath on unbelieving world and their wickedness, As he said here, he's going to try them that dwell on the earth. It's going to be a time of great, catastrophic destruction and misery 
Well, he says, I'll keep you from that hour. I will keep you from that hour. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast what thou hast, that no man take thy crime. And then he gives a, so there's a promise of protection. There's a promise of reward. Verse 11, there's, he speaks of a crown. He keeps several things. A crown, a pillar, and a new name. A crown. 1 Corinthians 9, 24, 25 says, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth of a mastery is tempering all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we in incorruptible. There's a crown for our faithfulness to the Lord. In 2, Peter chapter, or 2 Timothy chapter 4, in verse 8, Paul said, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. See, God's going to give a crown to those who are faithful. There's a crown that awaits us. He's also, he promised a pillar. Well, that doesn't sound real flattering, does it? You want to be a pillar? Well, what is a pillar? The word pillar here means, the, the connotation is, I will assign him a firm and abiding place in the everlasting kingdom of God. You know, we say, well, in fact, in Galatians chapter 2, Paul talked about those who seem to be pillars in the church of Jerusalem. He's talking about Peter and, and some others. In other words, they were the, they were the, the ones that gave stability to the church at Jerusalem. They were the leaders. So when it speaks of a pillar, he said, I will make, I will, him that overcome with, will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. And notice, he shall go no more out. You know, the history of God's people, especially through the dark ages, was they fled from place to place, being hunted like animals, slaughtered by the millions. And, 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 and this isn't our home. We have no dwelling place here. The idea of a pillar is to be assigned a firm and abiding place in the temple of God. In the new Jerusalem. Notice, notice again verse 12. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall go no more out. I will write upon him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, which is new Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. You know how many times the Lord says my? And he's going to give that to us. I'm going to give him, make him a pillar in my temple, in my city, and I'm going to give him my name. We'll go no more out. Kind of reminds me of Psalm 23 and verse 6. The last phrase says, And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord. No longer a vagabond and a pilgrim in this world. Dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. In that new Jerusalem with streets of gold like transparent glass, gates of pearls, be no night there. God is the light thereof. And there we will have a firm and abiding place and a new name. You know, I think this name carries with it his authority. We are going to rule and reign in his name. 
You know, he told Corinth, do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? Revelation 20 tells us we're going to rule and reign with Christ. And it's going to be in his name. He's going to give us his name. You know, the other day, Friday, I was working with Brother Crittenden. I went to two places, authorized by the name of another. I went to Jacob's Glass to pick up some glass. And, you know, if I'd have went in there and said, I'm Jason Byler, I'm here to pick up glass, they'd have said, what glass? We have no order from you. No, I went there and I said, I'm from C&E Glass. And I'm here to pick up some mirrors. See, I was authorized by C&E Glass. I went in the name of another. And that same day, I went to the Governor's Club. Not that I could ever live in there, but I went there in the Governor's Club. You know, it's in Chapel Hill, million-dollar houses, maybe a couple million-dollar houses, I don't know. Anyway, gated community. And I pulled up to the gate, and I said, we're here to do an installation for C&E Glass on John Manley, or such a name of contractor. See, I went under the authority of another name. I couldn't have got in. If I'd have said, I'm Jason Byler, I'm here to install mirrors. No, I had to go with the company name. It gave me the authority to get into the governor's club. You, know, you and I have no authority on our We have no authority on our own as a church. But the authority that God gives us. And he's going to give us a new name. He's going to authorize us to rule and reign with him for a thousand years. As I've said, as we look through this book, we have a glorious future to look forward to. You know, we are on a pilgrim, pilgrimage here in this old world. This is not our home. It's not our settling place. But one day, he's going to assign us a firm and abiding place. Make us a pillar in his kingdom, in his temple. And give us his name. And we'll live in his authority. We'll rule and reign with him. Do you know him as your Lord and Savior? Have you received him? Are you keeping his name, the Lord Jesus Christ? Acknowledge him as your Lord, Savior, and King. He that hath ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. You know, these are the true words of God, and we need to give heed 